invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We're going to look today in our study, Return Lessons from the Minor Prophets. We've been looking at each of the messages of the Minor Prophets thematically and in the broad picture of what was going on in their ministry as well as among the people that they were ministering to. And I want to share a personal experience relative to this message today from the book of Habakkuk. I've been preaching for a long time, and I'll tell you that preaching is always work. Uh, It's work because the Lord has to get the word in you before he can deliver the word through you. You're often confronted with your own faith experience with the Lord and, and how that applies to your life. And I've probably preached somewhere well north of 3,000 individual messages since the Lord called me to preach. And every, every now and then, there'll be a text that'll just hit you for just unusual reasons. Um, you don't really know what the Lord's doing with it or, or why, and you're especially not expecting it in the Old Testament minor prophet. Um, But when preaching is a blend of work and worship, uh, then that's where change really takes place. And um, I just pray that I'm faithful to deliver this message and whatever the Lord wants to do in your life today, there's a purpose for it, I know that. Um, Because I had moments of worship all week as I was thinking about this message. So I'm going to pray and just ask the Lord's help in these moments, and uh, we'll get into the text. Fathers, we come to you today in faith. We realize that you are faithful. You are holy in every way. You are exalted. May the name of Jesus be high and lifted up today as we think about what it means to live by faith. Lord, I pray you would use this message however you see fit in these moments. I thank you for speaking to me through your word this week. And I pray now that your spirit would be our teacher and that we would receive whatever you have for us. If there are some who need to meet Christ today, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. If there are some who need to be renewed in what a life of faith is all about. I pray that you would touch us at the deepest part of our souls and remind us that it is grace upon grace and faith saturated in everything that we do. It's the only way to live and the only way to please you. And I pray, Father, if there be a collective message that you would want us to learn, uh, even as a church through this, that you would teach us. You're always faithful to your word. We thank you for it. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for guiding us in righteousness. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The message today is entitled, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. Habakkuk, in his message, in his prophecy, in his interaction with God, addresses wickedness, judgment, and the subject of faith. 
Now, one of the things I know is that faith is a word that is often used, but it is also often misunderstood. Faith is defined in the Bible as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I love what A.W. Tozer said about faith. He said, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Faith is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Faith is necessary for our salvation in order for us to enter into a relationship with God through his son. When you believe and receive forgiveness and eternal life from Jesus, it is faith that marks out the beginning of your Christian life. Faith is necessary also to live as a follower of Jesus. It's not just the entry point into the Christian life, but it is the fullness of the Christian life that is lived out by faith. And faith will be fully realized when we get to eternity because there's going to be a time when we'll not live by faith, but we'll live by sight and our faith will become sight. Let me give you just a bit of background and context context about Habakkuk. There are two references to Habakkuk in this prophecy. He's identified as Habakkuk the prophet in both chapter 1 and chapter 3. I think it's possible that he was formally schooled in the law of Moses. It's also possible that he could have been a priest involved in the worship of the temple. There's a specific reference at the end of the book about the choir director and the stringed instruments. And many people believe as a result of that that he was speaking in terms of their collective worship. The name Habakkuk probably means he who embraces or he who clings. And I think that's a fitting uh, description because he held firm to his faith even in times of uncertainty. And that's what God calls us to do is to, to hold firm to our faith. And it's not just the object of faith, but it's where our faith is placed. So while there's a lot of discussion about faith and a lot of uh, information about faith and a lot of generalization about faith, it really comes down to the heart of where is your faith? What is it focused on and who is your faith in? Now we're given some clues as to the dating of the book because there are references given to the immediate or at least the imminent, I should say, Babylonian invasion uh, several times. The Chaldeans are referred to here, who are one in the same as the Babylonians. The worst and the finality of it would come in 586 B.C. So this is a low time in the history of God's people, spiritually speaking. With that invasion pending, Habakkuk probably prophesied during Jehoiakim's reign, a king who led his people into evil. And then when the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 B.C. because of the Assyrians, the southern kingdom remained. They wondered what was God up to and what would their role in it be. So I want you to think clearly about how this particular prophet constructs his message. The book is constructed in an extended dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Unlike other prophets who declared God's message to the people, Habakkuk dialogued with God about the people. And the writing reads as much like poetry as it does prophecy. The other prophets proclaim God's judgment, and Habakkuk is actually pleading for God's judgment. The prophet starts the conversation based on the stress that he's feeling. As we begin to read it, we can almost we can almost identify with the, with the weight that he has on him, with the heaviness of the situation that he's experiencing. And 
He is standing in Jerusalem probably, troubled by what he's seeing, and he wants to see God at work in their midst. Part of how he wants to see God at work in their midst is he wants to see justice done because of evil. So what he does is he turns his stress and his frustration into prayer initially and into praise ultimately. We all have been perplexed by the evil around us, and maybe we are today as well. We can feel helpless and trapped in the face of it. Why is there so much evil and injustice? Why do the evil prosper? These are not new questions, but Habakkuk brings us down to the heart of what our relationship with God is all about. And I believe the theme is found in the second part of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. And it says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Habakkuk begins with an interaction with God, and then he ends with an intercession to God. Worry is transformed into worship. Fear is transformed into faith. Terror becomes trust. Hang-ups are resolved with hope. Anguish melts into adoration. And we're going to see the movements of this discussion with God, and we're going to draw from that the significance of our own faith and what it means to live life with God. So first of all, we want to note that there is a question. There's a question. Let's pick up reading in Habakkuk 1 and verse 1, and I'll read through verse 4 as we begin. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, strife, conflict, wickedness, perverted justice. There were all kinds of problems. And because of those problems, there was confusion related to the burden. Here was a man who had struggled with God's silence. So the prophet asked the question of God, how long? He follows with why and who. He was looking, he was worrying, he was surmising about the situation. He had been praying evidently for a long time and he's feeling like somehow God is indifferent or somehow God is inactive in light of what was going on. And in his heart, he was outraged at what he saw when he looked around him in society. And he lists six different problems. And while the list is repetitious, it emphasizes how bad things were. Sin, destruction, violence, lack of justice, and wickedness were rampant. Does that sound familiar to you? Certainly sounds familiar to me. If you consider just a few of the prominent headlines from this week, YouTube parenting mom arrested for child abuse. Jet ski tourists shot dead in Algerian waters. Brazilian murderer escapes U.S. prison. Hurricane Adalia brings destruction. 
two-year-old boy killed in a ghastly accident. And on and on we could go. So many problems. So much pain. And in verse 4, he says, the law is ineffective. It is ignored. The prophet was preaching against all of this, but yet there's little to no effect. He feels like that what he's been saying and the effort that he's been making and the message that he's been communicating, that the people are just ignoring it. They're doing as they please. And he's crying out to God about the things that he sees. Now, people of God, like Habakkuk, can and do at times ask questions of God. Have you asked questions of God? You certainly have. I know I have. Maybe a prayer that you have prayed has not been answered the way that you wanted. Or maybe the timing of the prayer was not what you anticipated. And yet God knows every thought that we have and nothing is hidden from God's sight. I think about the psalmist who wanted an answer in a time of need and he asked questions of God. In Psalm 10 and verse 1 it says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And there's example after example of questions that are asked in the Psalms of God. Now I want to note this, and I think this is very important as we think about asking God questions. There's a difference between asking God questions and questioning God. For example, Abraham's questions for God revealed his doubt. Genesis chapter 17 tells of when Abraham found out that they were going to have a son in their old age. What did he do? He laughed and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man who is 100 years old or will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He was not asking questions of God. He was questioning God. And there's a difference. Job's questions for God reveal his desperation. A man who suffered so greatly, who literally lost it all. In Job 3 and verse 11, he said, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? And the problem comes when we don't just ask questions, but we question God. And our questioning leads to disobedience. You say, where do we see that in the Bible? Adam and Eve. You remember they questioned God. Questioning can lead to sin, but questioning itself is not necessarily sin. Sometimes we wonder when we look around at our own situation or the condition of the world, why are you permitting this, Lord? How long will it go on? God, do you really care? Is the heart of the question that we're asking. And then we're reminded from the Word of God that He is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we know that the plan of God is that the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So in this present time, as bad as it is, as serious as the darkness is, as deep as the troubles are, as confusing as the problems are, we know that God is working out His plan for the ages. He is gathering a family for himself who will worship him for all of eternity. And through faith in Jesus, we get to be a part of that family. Asking God questions is not wrong. What matters is how we approach him. Somebody said we are finite beings approaching an infinite God seeking to understand his will. And when we ask questions, we come to a deeper understanding of who God is 
in what he desires of us. So don't hide your questions. Ask questions of God freely. But don't question God in arrogance or as though God owes you something. Question him with gratitude. Ask questions that are on your heart because he already knows what you're thinking and what you're dealing with. Second, there's an answer. I pick back up reading in chapter 1 and verse 5, and I'm going to go through verse 11. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. This is God speaking. For I'm doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep, verse 11 says, they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. God was not inactive. He was not silent. It might have seemed that way. But God was raising up a foreign nation, the Babylonians, to come and to destroy Judah. He said, look around. Look at these surrounding nations. There's going to be a nation that's going to come that will be an instrument of judgment. And he says to Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Why? Because the Babylonians were worse than the people of God. But God was going to use them as an instrument of judgment. And when we read verses 5 through 11, what we are reading is a description of the details of just how bad these people really were. And in these verses, God calls the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a bitter, impetuous nation. They were a nation that took lands that were not their own. They had horses that were swift and they were more fierce than wolves at night. The imagery is of them swooping down like eagles, ready to devour. They had come to do violence and gather prisoners. And their strength was their God. It tells us in verse 7 that their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Folks, that is a telling verse. That where they were getting their perspective was from themselves. They were making a God of their own image. And they were their own God. And they're coming against the nations of the world. So to say it in summary, these were some bad people. And yet Judah's sin would not go unnoticed. Justice was not dead. God was not asleep. Discipline and correction were forthcoming. And it was deserved. But the means of the correction seemed incredible. A lot of us pray, and we pray regularly to have God address evil in society, and we pray and we believe for revival. 
But let me ask you this question. What if God sent a dominating and evil foreign nation against us to conquer the United States? Would we think that was an appropriate answer to our problems? We're certainly not thinking we're praying for that or expecting that. For Habakkuk, there was waiting because of the timing. He looked, he listened, he heard the response of God, and there is a word of caution here for us. And I think the word of caution here for us is that when you ask God questions, he does not always give you the answer you were asking for or the situation that you were hoping for. And I don't know about you, but I always have some type of idea when I pray a prayer of how I want God to answer it. In fact, there are times I'd like to just ask God to specifically answer it in the way that I want, and then he answers it in another way, and that's a true test of my relationship with him. And when he does it differently than what I was expecting, I don't always know how to take it. That's the situation Habakkuk was in as he dialogues with God. There's a question, there's an answer, and then there, thirdly, is a response to the answer. Chapter 1 and verse 12. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die, Lord. You appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent when one is wicked, uh, who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? And then chapter 2 and verse 1. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. If you were to consider verses 12 and the first part of verse 13 in isolation, you might think at first glance that Habakkuk took what God said and was content with it. He accepted the answer, but he didn't particularly like it. And the reason he didn't like it is that he was troubled with the circumstances at hand. God had answered him. God said, there's judgment coming. Habakkuk was troubled by the instrument of judgment that God said was going to execute it. And from Habakkuk, the cure to what he was concerned about seemed to be worse than the problem itself. Now, you'll notice people around you who profess faith and say that they are believing people and who follow after the Lord. You will notice that sometimes in trouble, people have a tendency to withdraw. They don't like the pressure. They don't have the patience to wait on God. Maybe they lack the faith to believe that God is going to intervene or 
somehow to, is going to resolve the problem, so they just fade. Happens all the time. Others just give up on God. They get mad at God because they didn't get the answer to the prayer the way that they prayed it. They didn't get it in the timing that they wanted. They made God of a vision of their own, just like the Chaldeans did. And they give up on God, maybe really close to when the answer was coming. I like what the old preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones contributed to this discussion as he suggests a different response in these types of situations. He said we should stop to think. Before we start talking about it, he said you ought to think about it. You ought, you ought to process what's going on. Then he said you should restate the basic principles that you know. So as you begin to think about a problem, don't begin with the problem itself. Go back to the basics of what you know about God and go back to the basics of what you know about what, how God interacts and works on behalf of his people. Now, I think this is especially helpful because when we get in those moments, especially on an, on an individual level, um, when we think back to how God has been faithful in the past, that brings us confidence to how God is going to act in the present. And when I look back over my life and I see how God has been good to me and how God has been faithful and how God has always come through, even when it seemed like I didn't know what was coming next, when I look back at a basic principle like that, that God is faithful and God keeps his promises and God always cares for his people, and that's going to give me strength and courage in the moment. And Jones says, apply the principles to the problem. Think about your problem in light of what you know about God, in light of what you know about how he interacts with his people. And then he says, finally, commit the matter to God in faith, whether you know what to do or not. Stop to think, restate basic principles, apply the principles to the problem, and commit the matter to God. Now, this is ultimately how Habakkuk responded to God in this dialogue. He remembered that God is immutable and unchanging. He is eternal. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And because he does not change, it means that he keeps his promises. He kept his promises to Israel. He has kept promise after promise in your life. So the next time that you face a challenge, the next time that you face a situation, the next time that you get yourself in a bind, don't look to the problem first, but look to God and know that God is always faithful. And he always comes through on behalf of his people. He does not change. And God would not totally destroy them because of his covenant promise. And that's why Habakkuk says, we won't die. And he knew this ultimately to be true, even if something significant happened in the immediate circumstance. He trusted in God, but did not fully comprehend the answer. What does that require? It requires faith. Habakkuk knew that God hates evil. He was amazed that God could use Babylon as he planned to. And he says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. He begins to anticipate an answer from the Lord. And he's willing to wait for it. I love the way the commentator Meyer put it. He said, how often God's answers come and find us gone. We have waited for a while, and thinking there was no answer, we've gone one way. 
But as we have turned the first corner, the post has come in. God's ship touches at our wharves, but there is no one to unload them. It's not enough to direct your prayer unto God. Meyer says, look up and look out until the blessings of God alight on your head. I think Habakkuk also anticipated that God would correct him. In fact, he knew he needed to be corrected. In a way, he's asking for it. But in essence, God tells Habakkuk, hey, don't worry about the Babylonians. The Babylonians, they're going to get what's coming to them. You worry about yourself. You worry about your relationship with me. You worry about how you approach me. And you worry about how you trust me. And you worry about where your confidence, confidence is. And in the same way, the message is coming, I think, collectively to the church today because it's so easy for us to look around and we see all the wickedness and, and we can bemoan all that's going on in the culture and all the evil that's happening and lost people acting like lost people. And we don't know where to turn. We don't know what the answer is. And God says, listen, I'm going to deal with all that. In fact, I've already dealt with it. Ultimately, judgment is coming. But what you need to do is you need to trust in me. And he told Habakkuk to write it down because it was going to happen. Go ahead and record it. Now we come to this key phrase in Habakkuk that stands out like a rose in a manure pile. It is the theme of the book, the second part of chapter 2 and verse 4. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Now I want to spend the majority of the balance of my time with you today on this concept because this verse is at the heart of the gospel. Righteousness is received by faith and righteousness is lived by faith. This particular phrase is quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it to emphasize that righteousness only comes by faith in Jesus. He opens up the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, he says, for in the gospel or righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he quotes it here. And this idea of the righteous or the just living by faith is what stirred up the soul of Martin Luther during the time of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was a young man who entered in, a relatively young man, who entered into a Catholic monastery seeking to be free from the burden of his sin. And his eyes were open, and it was this text that turned him upside down. It was this text that fueled the Protestant Reformation. It was this text out of which sola fide, or uh, faith alone arose. And that the heart of the gospel is that salvation is by faith alone. Hear me, church. It is faith alone. It is not by works of the law, nor was it ever by works of the law. Salvation comes by faith alone. It's not by obedience to the church. Salvation comes by faith alone, not by human righteousness, because the very best thing that you could offer to God is as filthy rags in his sight. It's by faith alone, not by your baptism. It's by faith alone, not by your good intentions. It's by faith alone. It's not by some sacraments that we have identified. It's by faith alone, not by your good deeds or your acts of charity. It is by faith alone, plus nothing and minus nothing. This is the gospel. 
And then he mentions it again in Galatians 3 and verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. Now sometimes there is a fundamental misunderstanding, even among people who ought to know better, about how people were saved, especially before the cross. And some say, well, God gave them the law. And if they could keep the law, then they could be saved. But the Bible teaches that before the law was ever given, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is one of the main arguments by way of illustration that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Romans. He highlights Abraham and he makes it clear that salvation is by grace through faith. It's always been by faith. And there's no other means of approaching God. And in Hebrews, the writer in the third reference in the New Testament highlights the basic idea of all of Hebrews. And that is that Jesus is the solution for our sins. And we can have confidence in him and hold fast to our faith. So there's a warning and there's an encouragement. Hebrews 10 and verse 38. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. So here's the contrast. You can live by faith and you can please God, or you can not live by faith and you can suffer the consequences. There's no middle ground. A life of faith is the only way to please and to honor God. And the righteous or the just are those who have been justified by grace through faith. I want you to hold your place in Habakkuk and turn over just for a moment to to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 to 26, the Apostle Paul lays out in detail the significance of this discussion in what justification by faith is all about. And I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, and I'll read these few verses. He says, but now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the predicament that everybody finds themselves in, in verse 23. Verse 24 says, They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Hear me clearly, church. The righteousness of God is imputed to us. Credited to our account. Through faith in Jesus. When you believe in the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who left heaven and came to earth, who identified with this mess that we experience because of the fall of man, when you believe in the one who kept every point of the law that God had given perfectly, if you believe in the one who was tested and tempted in every way, yet was without sin. If you believe in the one who was willing 
to give his life on the cross and to be buried in a borrowed tomb and who on the third day was raised from the dead. When you trust in him, what God does is he credits the righteousness of Jesus to your account. It's not what you've done. It's not what you could do. It's nothing that you could possibly bring to the table. It's only Christ. And he's the one through whom the righteousness of God is imputed to us. And salvation has always been by faith. And to live meant to experience the blessings of God by trusting in his security and his protection and his fullness. And this contrasts with the self-reliant, arrogant ways of the wicked. Faith, or as it is translated also, faithfulness or steadfastness, are ideas that really can't be separated. Faith is what you believe. Faithfulness, or the obedience to Christ, as Paul puts it in Romans, is the fruit of what you have believed. If you have faith in Jesus, you rely wholly on him. You just commit yourself to him. You cast yourself on him. And then you seek to be faithful to him because of his goodness in your life. And the Christian life is lived by grace through faith. And in the moment, we are exercising faith because we have not yet seen fully all that we will experience. But I'm here to tell you today that there is a moment coming, either when my life on this earth is over or your life on this earth is over or when Jesus returns, that we will see him face to face and all that we have longed for and all that we have believed and all that we have held on to by faith, we will see it by sight and it will be realized and it will be just as certain as God has told us. And I look forward to that day. We ought to live faithful lives here in the present, con contributing what we can to the glory of God because of what he's done for us. But we also ought to long for that home in heaven because we know that this life is not all that there is. This is not the end of the story. It's just a chapter. And there's a much longer story coming when we spend eternity with God. So I want you to think about it this way. Believe and then do. Trust and then obey. And God will be honored. We come back to Habakkuk again in chapter 3. And I want to pick up reading in verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. What a wonderful message for us to take hold of and to echo in unison to God the words that Habakkuk prays here in this third prayer. Lord, I have heard the report about you. We are here today because... We have heard the report about God. We are here today because there is a God who has made all that there is by his spoken word. He called it into being. We are here only because God gave us life. And we think about his goodness to us and what he's done, what we've heard about him. And because of that, we're with Habakkuk. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. And he's proclaiming his praise here. And this should be how we live. Friends, 
If we get caught up in anything but worship to the one true living God, we are focused on the wrong thing. And so many times in the church, I believe that we go through the motions and, and we live this consumer Christianity that is so common. And, and we just go through the motions because we think it's the right thing to do or we want to be seen as good people or somehow we want some type of magic blessing from God. And the only reason that we are here is because we stand in awe of his deeds. That's why we're here. We're, we're here to worship when we gather together like this on a Sunday morning or another appointed time or when we come before the Lord in, in his word and in prayer, we are coming because we stand in awe of his deeds. And if you come with that worship mentality, it changes everything about your life. And so we pray as Habakkuk did, revive your work in these years. What are we really expecting God to do? Like, like, what are you expecting God to do through, the, through your life? And what are you expecting God to do through the ministry of Crosslinks Baptist Church? Are we really living in faith? Are we believing that God will meet us at our point of need? Habakkuk ends with a response to what he's heard. It's a personal prayer, but I think it's also intended to be a psalm used in worship. And he sings of the greatness of God and his power to save. In Habakkuk, there's a lament in terms of acknowledging the spiritual struggle in the world. It's okay to lament. But you need to be sure where you think the answer to your lament comes from. There's judgment, and this sin will not be ignored. But at the heart of it, don't miss this, there's a call to faith that is gritty and it's real and that's what we need that's what we need we need a faith that is gritty and real and it's a call to faith there is complete confidence in God and I'm thankful to tell you today that based on the truth of the gospel that is given in the Word of God that all people in all places at all times can be saved if they will trust in Jesus if you will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And it's offered freely to whosoever will come to Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to sing an old closing hymn. Pastor Eric's going to lead us in only trust him. And here's how it goes in part. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Now listen to this part. I love this part. For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Only trust him. Let's bow our heads together for a moment before we sing. Maybe you're here today and you've never met Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I extend a simple invitation to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Today, your life could change forever. You thought you were coming to a worship service and you were coming to meet God. Your life could change forever. I'll be here in the front after we sing. I'd love to talk with you, answer questions, pray for you. And you can take that step of faith. But maybe you're dealing with something in your life, in your family, or maybe just generally as you look around this yet the circumstances of the world 
and you've been struggling to believe that God is at work and your faith is weak, would you ask God in these moments just to strengthen your faith, to refocus your eyes on Jesus, to fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith? We've got nothing to fret. We don't have to be worried. You don't have to have anxiety today about what's going on. God has already won the victory. And now we're getting to be a part of it. And we will eternally be a part of it. And then what are we doing as a church? Are, are we living by faith? I mean, are we truly believing? God help us that we not just go through the motions. But that we believe that God can do far beyond what we would ask or think. For his glory. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word from Habakkuk. I pray that we would receive it in our hearts and that you would strengthen us even as we meditate on it in the week to come to evaluate whether or not we are living by faith. We thank you for your grace that is super abundant. You have poured it out on us in your only son. We thank you for the blood that was shed at Calvary. We thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness and everlasting life. May we live in it, Lord, for your glory. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.